Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we're going to be playing the final part of our interview with Joe LaPello, covering his great uncle's murder. So pour yourself some fire department coffee, and let's dive in. What I was going to ask you in regards to that is, do you think at any point it was an actual attempt to end his life or was all of it just to get the police's attention shifted to something different? Oh, yeah. The, 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 I mean, he was never intended to be killed. He, he was needed to, um, to relay the story from the train to uh, Inspector Boyd and to get Boyd away from the ward in downtown Toronto and send him on a wild goose chase to Montreal looking for this woman. You know, so, I mean, he was just a, a poor young sol- Canadian soldier who was on police at the wrong time. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, later on, like, I think it's in August sometime, he's assaulted by a man in downtown Toronto. Uh, he's also drugged. And, and uh, this man is in the company of this woman again. The same woman? Yeah, and it's in the book, you know. And that's uh, the reason he's assaulted is so that he can't yell out for the police. There they are, there they are. They, they put a, sa- uh, a, a cloth saturated with some sort of liquid that causes him to pass out. That, that was a real uh, chance meeting, you know. And, but the one on the train was all staged. It was planned. It was, a, it, it, it was just a, a move of, of deception. You know, and it worked. It sounds like, um, and I know you talk about it more in the book, that a lot of planning went into all of this. Yes, yes, a great deal. Well, everything was planned. The, um, from the time they walked up to the taxi stand, the man and the woman, uh, the way they concealed their identities, uh, the man, uh, later on, I, I, I found out who he was, and I he did have an Italian accent. He spoke English, but with an, a very thick Italian accent that would have been recognizable later on. So uh, when he was at the taxi stand, he never uttered one word. Well, that's no accident that happened. That was part of the plan. She did all the talking. Her face was concealed right up to where they wanted to be taken. And then... Uh, the, sta- the murder scene, the body, the, the crime scene was staged to give the impression that, I mean, uh, that this was a crime of passion, a spur-of-the-moment thing that happened. I, I mean, their, es- their escape route, that the man and woman would leave Carmine, and then Carmine would meet up with the, uh, the killer, the actual killer, who I believe posed as a taxi fare. He must have, because he was driving somebody to Toronto, and they got into an argument that was witnessed by somebody who lived on a, a, on, a, on the street where it happened. But it was very late; it was four o'clock in the morning. You know, and I know I know that the man that actually committed the murder wasn't the man from the taxi stand. The man from the taxi stand was five foot six in height. The autopsy report, Carmine's autopsy report, puts his height at five foot seven. The witness from the, uh, from out at the Humber Bay area 
who saw two men quarreling and heard uh, louds yelling and a scuffle, a fight, said one one uh, one of the men were was quite a bit taller than the other. Well, at sixty yards, one man being five foot seven and one another man being five foot six, that wouldn't be noticeable at sixty yards. But if one man was six feet and the other one was five foot seven, that would be noticeable. So that's that's how I started to put the plot together. The man and the woman who hired him, their job was to lure him out there. When they left, uh, also there was a getaway driver. When the when the killer finished killing Carmine, he had to get back to Toronto. That's where he was from. There was a getaway driver. There was two women uh, who lived on uh, Queen Street near this uh, near Salisbury. That was the actual street that the murder took place, and they saw a, uh, a car uh, speeding away. You know, so I mean, everything. Everything about this, uh, the meeting on the train afterward, once the police started asking question, questions and it took them to the ward, an address in the ward where they became a little bit, they, they, they got close to finding out more information. Uh, the phone call was made. The woman came up with the scheme uh, to pull on the private on the train. You know, and that sent the inspector. But the inspector never did go back down to that uh, address 124 Elm Street in the ward where he was very close to finding out what was going on. They completely steered him away from that. And he never returned there. You know, that's why I say he was was more or less just interested in uh, checking all the boxes and turning in a very thorough police report that would make his uh, his superiors happy and... uh, but he wouldn't solve the crime, you know. So 124 Elm Street, now that was where Miss Colello lived, correct? Yes, Mrs. Colello. They had a grocery store. They lived there. It was also a lodging house, too. They also served, uh, served, uh, they were selling alcohol out of there, too, when the prohibition came in. And uh, they had hit out somebody from... Well, for Niagara Falls, the man was wanted, a wanted man, and he hid out there. It was later revealed. So, you know, uh, it was a place where, you know, they were involved with crime. You know, it it could be used as a hideout. They would sell alcohol there. Who knows what else they were doing there? You know, they were probably in the grocery business, but by and large, with the type of money they were making selling alcohol, it might have just turned into a front know a front business and so as we're talking about mrs colello um she was actually somebody who had come or who had been a witness not to the murder itself but after the murder correct she was a witness well no she knew she did was never called to a coroner's inquest or anything like that she was questioned by inspector boyd i thought she was the girl that came forward because she went to get um groceries or produce well, yeah, she went out to buy vegetables out by that area where the murder took place. But uh, what had happened was, okay, now uh, I'm getting back to these two women that lived on Queen Street. They had houses on Queen Street, and uh, they had small farm businesses there, and they get up very early in the morning. And um, what I think happened, the, the, the night of the murder, July the 20th at 4 a.m. when the murder took place, uh, the murderer ran down to Queen Street, 
on Salisbury, which is about 50 yards, not that far. He signaled the getaway driver. He sped along Queen Street, picked up the murderer, turned around quickly, and sped off back to Toronto. I believe that the lights were on in the house of these two women uh, that lived on Queen Street. And I think that the killer, or, or pardon me, the getaway driver had thought that he had been seen, or the truck he was driving had been seen by these two women. So, and they might have had a sign on, you know, Colello's uh, uh, Groceries or something like that, one, uh, 124 Elm Street, Toronto, or something like that. But he was, he, he might have been, I think he was concerned about it because, you know, they saw him. He might have thought that, uh, that they that they saw him, you know. So uh, when he went back to Toronto, uh, he was actually married to one, uh, one of the Colello's daughters. And uh, he told uh, Caroline Colello, this is Colello there, that if anyone asks if you were out that way, you tell them you were and what time it was and uh, that you were buying groceries because that's what they would do. They used to go out to these ho- small hobby farms, buy all their produce and bring it back to the grocery stores. So they'd have to go out early in the morning. You know, they couldn't go out in the afternoon and do this because, uh, you know, all the, the people used to do their shopping in the morning for the groceries, right? So, so, uh, uh, she was questioned by Inspector Boyd. It's in his report, and it's in the book, too, that she said she had been out there to buy the groceries, and she saw the body and saw the car, but she thought it was somebody somebody sleeping off a drunk. Well, that made me very suspicious that that she would conclude something like that. Like, why would somebody sleep off a drunk in a ditch? Because that's where his body was found when they had the backseat of a taxi cab to sleep off a drunk. Why would you choose sleeping on the ground when you could sleep in the car? You know, so I didn't believe her statement. I I agree. It sounds like a very suspicious statement when you put it that way. So if you conclude that she's lying, who is she lying for? And that was another trail I had to uh, start uh, investigating, researching. Who, Who else lived in the house? Who... Who was her daughter married to? What was that family involved with? Did they have any, any involvement? You know, and then I, I... Every time I got a name, I did research on it. And then I put it into the puzzle, how it figured, uh, how it, uh, figured into the, this, you know, onto this big uh, mural. And at the center of it was the murder. And it was just, you know, connecting the dots, really. Although... Uh, it was quite a job finding out who the man and woman were at the time uh, from the taxi stand. They had never, never been identified. No one had ever mentioned their names. And I stumbled across that by researching. Carmine had a brother named uh, Joe, Joseph, and that was my grandfather, that uh, lived on a street called Manny. Well, he lived in a house uh, that was a semi-detached house. They were connected, but separate houses, you know. And uh, his neighbor was a man named Lombardi, but it wasn't Frank Lombardi. It was Fred Lombardi. Fred was Frank's brother. Uh, Fred had a daughter who was married in 1919, two years after the murder. There were two witnesses at the wedding. One was the man from the taxi stand, 
I later found out his name, and uh, I mean, I found out from the, uh, the document, I confirmed who it was. And the other witness was a Mary Colello, who lived at 124 Elm Street. So a lot of a lot of it began connecting up, you know, uh, being able to to see how these people were all involved in the liquor business, the illegal liquor business, and you know who was around them at the time and. Does that answer your question? Or yes, it does. So you kind of talked about um, just now, you know, looking into the identities of everybody who was involved. And so one of the questions that I had is, so how did you feel each time you were crossing somebody off of your list? Did you ever be like, well, now it's not that person. So now I have to try to find another person that I can investigate. Like, how did, what did, did you feel happy that you were crossing people off the list or kind of discouraged that it's like, oh, well, it wasn't this person, so I don't know who it is now. No, it wasn't so much uh, crossing people off the list as it was um, narrowing it down to who would be involved with this, who who had something at stake here, who losing something by being informed on, you know, that, that's what it was. It was narrowing it all down. Uh, like the one of the people I crossed off List was a um, Alexander Campbell Mason uh, that in, in 1923 in London, England, he had been convicted of murdering a taxi driver, but he had actually resided in Ontario and had been uh, convicted of breaking entry to houses. And uh, in 1923, when he was convicted in London, uh, he was sentenced to death. But uh, an act of the British Parliament, once uh, some of the uh, lords and uh, uh, men in the House of Commons uh, reviewed the case, they, commu- they had, uh, by an act of Parliament, they commuted his sentence to life because they knew something was wrong with his conviction. But, and I did research him, and he just didn't fit the bill of a killer. So I, disreg- you know, I, I, I threw him out. You know, I, I just couldn't, and it was even questionable that in 1917 he was still in Canada, you know. But uh, these people I was finding out about, like from the ward and that address in the ward on Elm Street, <coughs> you know, uh, as I was crossing them off, like, it, it wasn't discouraging to me. It, it almost felt like, uh, you know, with everybody I crossed off, I was getting closer to who was left. And that that would be the you know the killer, or the people involved in this plot to kill my great uncle. Yeah, I think that's probably a really good way to look at it. You know, um, I had uh, spoken to uh, to a couple of my relatives about the research I was um, I was doing on 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 the case, and a lot of them had expressed some suspicion on the family of uh, the woman who my great-uncle was married to. He was married in 1914. You know, a lot of them thought, well, she might have had something. She wanted a divorce. He didn't want a divorce. She ended up getting the divorce off of him. And then I researched her whole family. I actually got in touch with some of their great-grandchildren who gave me pictures and things like that. And uh, But none of them fit the profile of somebody uh, that would do this. You know, one was a musician, the other one was uh, into, uh, like, father was into uh, herb medicines and healing, dentistry, uh, 
that they, they just didn't fit the profile of somebody who would be involved in either the illegal biz, illegal alcohol business or murder. So, you know, I mean, that was that was their first assumption. Oh, you know, I don't trust them, and they had something to do with it. Well, they had nothing to do with it, and they had no reason to kill him. As as opposed as they might have been to the to the marriage of their daughter to my great uncle. In fact, she had secured before he was murdered an annulment in Buffalo, New York, because at the time, to get a divorce in Canada, you needed an act of parliament. It was lengthy and expensive. But in Buffalo, you could get an annulment or you could get a divorce in the United States. So that's where she went to get the annulment. She was granted the annulment. It was going to take effect in December of 1917. She was getting what she wanted from him. Why would why would you want to kill somebody after they've given you what you want? So, you know, they, they were pretty easy to dismiss as suspects, you know? Yeah, in the book, you did um, talk a lot about, so you, you got Ancestry.com, or Ancestry.ca, sorry. And you would look through that, and you, you um, was her name pronounced Marguerite? Marguerite Mulvaney was uh, my great uncle's uh, wife. Yes, is, I just wanted to make sure that was how her name was pronounced. Marguerite. Yeah, Marguerite. Okay. Yeah. So you had talked a lot about in that same chapter where you talked about the website Ancestry.ca. You talked a lot about uh, her family and how there was some suspicions around her, but you pretty much ruled out the family, including her fiancé at the time. Yeah, they were just not the type of people that would, to, to be involved with something like this, it just—I mean, you just—you just—I mean, anybody's capable of anything, I guess. They sure didn't fit the profile. And like I said, what motive did they have? They didn't want them married. She wanted a divorce. She got the divorce. Well, why kill them when you when you're getting what you want? You're right. There's absolutely no motive there anymore. So, from your opinion, what do you think? And you kind of briefly touched on it. Um, but what do you think the biggest thing is that they could have done differently in 1917 that would have led to this case being solved? It would be up to the police to solve it. I would say if Inspector Boyd had more insight and oversight, but most of all insight to be able to understand. He was getting information sent to him anonymously through the mail. Uh, like... Uh, and 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 two, uh, uh, the crown attorney at the time, Richard Halliburton Greer, got a letter stating that um, you know at the at the time there was a reward of five hundred dollars posted for uh, information leading to the the people that were responsible. Well, he got a letter stating that if the uh, reward was uh, uh, increased to a thousand dollars, that this person sending the letter. Uh, would divulge where the woman was, this mysterious woman. And in the next sentence, she says, uh, she's in Toronto, but your police can't find her. Well, I mean, you're asking for an increase in the reward. To, to, so so you'll tell everybody where this woman is. And in the next sentence, you tell her, you tell them, oh, she's in Toronto, but the police can't find her. Well, the, I mean, the whole the whole reason for asking for the increase is for is so, is to give them that info is is so to give them that information. And you're giving it to them for free. 
Sounds to me like they really didn't know. They just really wanted to try to get a lot of money out of it. And back then, $500 was a lot of money that they were already offering. And a thousand, yeah. No, but the reason for the letter was was to tell the police, you know, like, uh, if you increase, it read something like this, if you increase the reward from 500 to 1000 I'll tell you where the woman is, uh, this mysterious woman in the LaPello murder. She's in Toronto, but your police can't find her. Well, back then, Toronto wasn't as big as it is now. I mean, there's, you know, a couple, there's two and a half million people in Toronto. Back then, there might have, I don't think there was 200,000 people in Toronto. So, yeah, but why are you, you know, you're asking for an increase in the reward to give this information, and in the next sentence, you give the information. That's pretty obvious. You want the police to believe that the, look for the woman in Toronto, but she's not there. Obviously, she's not there. You're not going to tell her where, you know. It's this woman from the taxi stand that did all this, planting all these seeds, sending these letters to the uh, newspaper, threatening letters to Joseph Pill, you know. So you've talked a lot about the woman from the taxi stand, and they obviously played a big part in the murder itself. They're in your book a lot. So do you want to talk more about them? You, You found out what you believe to be their identities, correct? Yes. Their names were uh, Rocco Perry and Bessie Starkman. Or Beth, she called herself Bessie Perry. She used Rocco's name after um, she eloped with it. Well, she didn't actually elope. Uh, Rocco Perry came from Italy, Calabria, back, oh, 1890, 1895, something like that. And he landed in New York. And then from New York, he made his way to Montreal, Canada. And then from, Can- uh, and then from Montreal, he came to uh, Toronto, where he was a laborer. He used to work on construction. And uh, he was a lodger at a home in the ward that was, was owned by Bessie and her then-husband, Harry Tobin. So her married name was Tobin. Her maiden name was Starkman. They were... Uh, Polish Jews that left Europe uh, because of the programs there that were going on. There was some persecution, and they left, and they got out of there. And she had married uh, Harry Tobin. He worked for a bakery in Toronto. I think he was a delivery man or something. And uh, Rocco was a lodger at their house. Well, it seems that uh, Rocco and Bessie had started up an affair together. And... uh, you know, while he was living there, uh, they became very close and everything. And I think, it was, well, in 1912, Rocco had been in jail in Guelph, Ontario, which is a town about maybe 70 miles west of Toronto. He had he'd been charged with murder. He actually did murder the person that uh, he was accused of, but he got off of the charge because some woman out there, uh, he, he had murdered a man who had insulted a mob boss out there. At the trial, the mob boss's wife testified that uh, Rocco was in bed in her house sleeping. He had been drinking, and he was nowhere near the murder scene, even though there were some other witnesses who, who shortly after the murder, identified him and said, yes, that's him, that's why he was arrested. But at the trial, suddenly they lost their memory, too. 
and that's how he got off. And uh, he went back to Toronto at the end of 1912, and he hooked up with Bessie. She had two small daughters, very small. I mean, they were infants. And she took off, left the, her husband, left those uh, two small girls, ran off with Rocco, and they ended up in Welland, Ontario. Uh, they were very poor. They, you know, the, uh, the Temperance Act, the prohibition, alcohol prohibition hadn't been passed. And uh, they uh, later there moved to Hamilton, had a little grocery store. Once uh, uh, the Temperance Act was passed, they were selling booze out of their uh, store. You could buy it by the shot or by the bottle. And Bessie was convicted, I believe, in 1916 of running a... Uh, House of prostitution at her at her residence there. You know, uh, she was convicted uh, in Hamilton Court of, of that. And uh, as soon as uh, prohibition hit, they um, she had discovered she was she was a very clever woman, no doubt in my mind. If uh, Bessie had been born, you know, uh, 60, 70 years later, she'd have been a uh, a CEO or CFO of a major transnational corporation. She was very clever, very bright, very astute. Um, she was also a sociopath, you know. I mean, you can imagine uh, leaving two infant babies on the floor uh, of your house. There's nobody home, and you just leave with Rocco. You know, I mean, uh, she was very self-centered, egotistical. All she cared about was herself and uh, improving her life uh, because the type of life that uh, her husband, the man that drove the delivery truck to the bakery, could give her was, you know, not very lavish, you know. But anyways, her and Rocco got together and uh, they went into the booze business. Later, um, the same man uh, that he uh, was protecting in Guelph, that mob boss, he had shot the other guy for it. He ended up being involved in that man's murder, that mob boss's murder in Lewiston, New York. Uh, the guy was found on the side of the road. He had two bullet holes in the back of his head. Well, I mean, it's pretty, it, it's pretty easy to assume that Rocco killed him uh, to become the boss, and that's what he became. In, a, in, in At least Ontario, he was the biggest bootlegger. He was actually the biggest bootlegger in Canada. He was like the Al Capone of, of Canada, but that didn't happen till later on in the 20s. You know, um, in 1917, they were just starting out. Prohibition had only been a year old. They were just trying to, you know, make some money at it. You know, they found a loophole in the uh, law. Because, see, in, in the United States, the uh, Volstead Act prohibited the manufacture of alcohol. In Canada, you could manufacture it, but you had to ship it offshore. Didn't matter where you shipped it to, as long as you didn't sell it in Canada or in Ontario. That's the province here. And uh, so what what they would do is they would phone, have an order phoned into a brewery for either beer or whiskey up here. They would, for a certain amount of cases of whiskey, let's say a thousand cases, and they'd uh, have it uh, a way bill that they were going to ship it to, say, to Cuba or even to the United States. And what what would happen is at the point of shipping it, uh, of the actual harbor where it was shipped, the Canadian government would um, 
receive an excise tax. Now, when the boat returned empty from its voyage and dropping off the alcohol, a small portion of that tax could be recaptured by the shipping company or, you know, by the people that made the alcohol. Well, what they did was, is when they shipped it, when they shipped it, let's say they'd ship it from a harbor in Toronto, well, they'd just go 30 miles to Hamilton and unload it, and they never come back to get a refund on the excise tax. The Canadian government didn't care because it kept all the money. So they were happy, and nobody would do any investigating about this. This is how they got away with um, uh, being able to order. This wasn't moonshine whiskey they were selling. This was the real McCoy from the distiller. As a matter of fact, um, Al Capone got his Canadian whiskey from them through the Purple Gang in Detroit. You know, so that they were shipping it all over because it was legal to make it here. It just wasn't legal to sell it here. So they just doctor up some phony orders that it was going to New York State or it was going to Cuba. And they'd load up the boats and they'd drive it 40 miles and unload it. So, she, you know, she found that, uh, that flaw in the uh, Ontario Temperance Act. And she exploited it. She was very sharp, very sharp woman. And she actually was the one that built the empire uh, that he ended up having in the alcohol business. I mean, he was a very, you know, he was an uneducated man. He was, he was um, refined at all. He couldn't move around. I mean, she made all the connections with all the distillers, the major distillers, you know. And uh, from there, they made their fortune. Uh, they were they were called to a Royal Canadian Inquiry. About about all this excise tax in 1928, and it was discovered that she had nine hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars in cash in one bank account, and she had several bank accounts around the city. You know, they they became very wealthy, and especially for 1928, that was a lot of money to have. You know, absolutely. And they had a they they lived. Uh, the proceeds from the alcohol they had bought purchased a 19 room mansion in uh, in Hamilton you know so they were doing quite well and it was all because of her she was very very clever but like i said she was you know she had traits of being a sociopath like she looked at everybody as if you know what can i get from you you know or how can i use you or you know she played people like they were pieces uh, on a chessboard and uh, you know for a while it was successful for them you know very successful and Rocco was the muscle part of it you know, you know I mean he, he was the one that organized the crews that would unload trucks and shipping stuff you know shipping to all the uh, speakeasies that were around you know from the, the various stash houses they had and uh, him and his gang, uh, by 1930, I believe, they were the suspects in 17 unsolved homicides in the southern Ontario region, and not one of those homicides included my great uncle. So they 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 were never identified, you know. And that, like I said, they didn't have the high profile in 1917 as they did later on in the 1920s. Well, that's that's a little bit about them, anyways. If you have any questions about that, Abby, or 
It's certainly like very interesting listening to all the levels that are going into this story and all the different people involved, especially when you pull in um, like the tea rooms and all of that. There's so much. Was it was it like a lot to take in when you were researching it? I didn't find it that way. No, I I I, I really didn't have any trouble uh, connecting the dots with everything. I didn't find it that that difficult. It's just, it was getting the information. You know, mm-hmm. like I would send away through a freedom of infor- information request uh, to the archives of of, of, of Canada uh, for certain information. I. You know, I'd have to wait two months to get it. Inspector Boyd's report, uh, I made a request to the archives of Ontario, and uh, I waited three months to get it. You know, so there was a lot of waiting in between. And, and, I, and that's what dead-ended me, is, is that I had no, no further avenues of research or data, data to go through. And that's what stumped it. And plus, I always, uh, you know, I would get some information and then I would get dead-ended again. There would be no conclusive resolution I could make from it. But there would maybe be three other uh, avenues to pursue pursue there, you know, and then I'd have to do all those. Because this is a multi-layered mystery. This isn't just, you know, what... One night they decided uh, they gotten uh, they hired them they killed them and then they left. You know this 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 thing. I mean, uh, well, well, that's one of the reasons why I say that Bessie was very smart. She thought this thing. Out. You can just see once you learn about her, you can just see her behind all this, setting everything up, telling everybody what to say, telling everybody what to do where the murder was going to take place, how many times he was going to be stabbed, how his body was going to be left. Um, everything, the deception, everything. And this is her, you know. She was the mastermind of it. You know, that's my belief anyways. And I'd like to say too, though, you know, with all of this information I've done, the book I've written, if anybody can come up with something plausible, that contradicts what I've said, I'd be prepared to listen to it. I'm still open-minded about it. But I spent six years doing this. I mean, I, as far as I know, I didn't leave any stone unturned. But, uh, you know, because of the length of time that, got, that had went by, you know, nobody to speak to to confirm things. You know, I any assumptions that I made were all based on some proof or at least uh, something that would bring you up to a theory to conclude that. I feel like when reading the book you um, and looking at the book, there's a lot of different chapters and I feel like everything cover is covered so well. You have the history of kind of what made you want to look into a specific thing and then you have uh, all the evidence that you found, and then you have why you think it is or is not connected to what's going on. You did a really good job of laying everything out and making sure that um, everything you did find was explained, how you found it, so that there was not really much question um, in regards to whether or not you did your research. Like It's very clear that you spent time and effort uh, and put a lot of work into all the or all the investigation that you did. Well, thank you. 
you know, I did. I, I it was, you know, I, I'd never written a book before. This was the first one I, I, I doubt seriously I, about doing another. I've written some articles for magazines and so, but short, small articles. You know what I mean? Uh, nothing that required this much work. And uh, yeah, it, it was. It, you know, I did my very best to, you know. Uh, Cross all the T's, dot all the I's, and and exp- and explain how I came to the conclusions that I did. And like I said, I, I basically I, I always tried to keep reason as my guide. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee, and you can get some as well and save fifteen percent with our exclusive coupon code CrimePod15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So, how did you feel when you first solved the case? Like, what was your immediate thought right after you're like, okay, I know who did it? Well, when I discovered who the man and woman from the taxi stand was, I I was actually very elated. I was just delighted that I, I was able to identify them because uh, w- once I found out about them and what they had been involved with, I knew I was, uh, I mean, it would be, it, there would be much more of a likelihood somebody involved in organized crime would be involved with a murder than, say, the Mulvaney family, you know, Marguerite's family, his, his estranged wife. You know, one, you know, one was a musician, the, the other one was a homemaker. I mean, if you, you know, so it was obviously that's where the play, that's, that, that, that was where to look, people involved in organized crime, you know, and it, and it made me feel very good. But you know, th- this is multi-layered, this mystery. Once I found out the man and woman from the taxi stand, but because of the evidence given at one of the uh, inquests by the eyewitness, uh, George Rush, from Salisbury Avenue, seeing the two men, one of, one of them being quite a, quite a bit taller than the other one, the question arose, well, did this man kill my great-uncle? He was five foot six. My uh, great-uncle was five foot seven. And the man arguing with my great uncle uh, at the murder scene was taller than my great uncle, right? So, so now it, uh, there was another mystery to, to unravel. You know, it seemed like when I solved one mystery, another one opened up, or two opened up. You know, but yes, when, when I found that, I knew, I knew I was on the right track. I knew I was. I, I knew I definitely zeroed in on some people. You know. So, yeah, it made me very happy, you know. Good. Uh, So do you want to kind of talk just uh, a little bit about who um, you believe committed the murder, the getaway driver? I mean, we talked about the man and the woman's identities, but do you kind of want to talk about the person that you feel like actually is the one that stabbed Carmine? Yeah, well, he was a, uh, I mean, the only way to... to describe him as he was like an urban terrorist. I mean, he was like, like a real guy involved in organized crime and violence. And he was feared in that neighborhood at the ward. Everybody knew him and everybody feared him. 
And uh, I believe he worked for Rocco, and Rocco get, got him to do it. His name was uh, Giuseppe Bernadelli, but he went by the alias of Joe Berlito. And uh, it was attested to in 19, 1932 at a trial that uh, he was uh, not only very good with a knife, uh, knew how to get quick results in killing somebody, but a very violent temper, and uh, and uh, he was a man who was feared. He was a dangerous guy, and that's exactly who would fit the probe. Somebody who would commit such a heinous murder uh, on my great uncle, you know. Uh, it turns out that uh, Frank Lombardi, the other taxi driver, who had an argument with my great uncle, who had the only other green car with the white stripe, and who lived in the ward had an altercation in September of 1919 with uh, Joe Berlito, uh, Giuseppe Bernadelli, the man that murdered my uh, great-uncle. They had the altercation right in the ward, but there was a history between those two. Frank was selling alcohol down there, and uh, I think uh, this Giuseppe Bernadelli wanted to control the whole area wanted to control all the... It would be very similar to a drug dealer today controlling an area of a city, uh, all the drugs being sold there. And that's what this guy wanted to do. And Frank would have none of it. And uh, as I mentioned before, Frank was pretty small in stature, but he sure didn't uh, lack any nerve. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, Giuseppe Bernadelli pulled a knife on him in September of 1919 and came towards him to stab him. Uh, Frank, uh, Frank uh, pulled a gun out on Giuseppe Bernardelli and told him, you, you drop the razor and stop, or I'll shoot you. He warned him twice, and uh, after the second time, he shot him, and he killed him. And uh, he then later took off. Frank uh, took off out of the country. He was hiding in, uh, in Bergen. Uh, New Jersey, I believe it was. Yeah, it was in New Jersey, Bergen, I believe. Uh, and he wasn't uh, caught, uh, apprehended, because everybody knew who killed Jimmy uh, Bernadelli. Everybody knew it. It was in the newspaper and everything. He had taken off. Frank had taken off and hid down in the States. And um, he was extradited in 1932. Two and stood trial for the murder that he committed uh, 19 years previous. And uh, he was convicted of it. But it, uh, the charge was dropped to manslaughter, and I think he was sentenced to four and a half or three and a half years uh, for killing. Uh, he, 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 he killed, he murdered the man that murdered my great uncle, is what happened. And he was extradited to the States, and then from there he was probably extradited to. Uh, uh, deported to uh, back to Italy, you know, where he came from. Do you think that Frank knew that the person he was murdering was the one who had murdered Carmine? Yes, he did. And he also knew how dangerous he was. Frank Lombardi, I had got his his uh, criminal record through the uh, Freedom of Information Act from the Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario. And uh, he had some earlier charges, but they were very petty. Like in 1897, he got caught stealing a newspaper. Uh, in 1900, he got caught stealing something else. It, it, not, 
He never got caught with a knife or a gun. There's nothing to suggest that he was a, uh, an unnecessarily violent person. You know, uh, so, uh, this is, yeah. and all of a sudden in 1919, he's carrying a gun with him. You know, why is he carrying a gun? Uh, at his trial in 1932, it, it had come out that um, him and, and this uh, Giuseppe Bernadelli both had separate gangs, and they, were, and they were fighting over the turf here in the ward for the alcohol business. And neither one of them was going to back down, but unfortunately, uh, Bernadelli had brought a, a knife to a gunfight and ended up dead. For, you know, Frank... Uh, uh, that was his, you know, uh, he knew he knew how dangerous Giuseppe Bernadelli was. And he, he thought him so dangerous that he ended up carrying a gun with him, something he had never done before. Frank Lombardi was never found or convicted of carrying any gun before. But when he had this scrap, this argument with Joe, um, uh, Giuseppe Bernadelli, he knew he had to arm himself, so he knew how dangerous he was. He knew that if they had a confrontation, they had had one before that, but if the next one, he knew that it was either going to be him dead or Giuseppe Bernadelli. And as it turned out, he, he ended up killing Giuseppe in September of 1919. So it also, it also confirmed the type of personality Joe Bernadelli was. I mean, he was, he was a very violent person. It was confirmed at his... Um, inquest too you know and it had been confirmed later at uh, frank lombardi's trial i mean he just had the reputation and everybody feared him down there in that area known as the ward in toronto yeah i think that answered my question really well i know you said some of your family had known about your research at the time um but how many people would you say actually knew that you were doing the research was that something you shared with a lot of people or something you kind of kept more private well, if you're asking for a number, I guess maybe eight, ten people knew about it. Eight to ten people, maybe twelve people. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I didn't really make a list or anything like that. It just came up casually in conversations at family meetings or something like that. They all thought I was crazy. They thought that there was no way uh, uh, I was going to be able to resolve that after all that time and everything, you know. But uh, I, didn't, you know, I didn't let anything like that discourage me. Like I said, my my uh, my initial thoughts, my initial intention was to find out as much as I could. You know, I I didn't think to myself that well, you, well, you you're going to be able to solve this. I I just said I'm going to gather as much information as I can, analyze it the best I can, and uh, and see where it goes. I never. You know, I never said to myself, I have to solve this or I'm going to solve this. I'm, I just, I thought, get as much info as you can, put it together, see if you can come up with something. And, uh, and, and it was never my intention to write a book about this either. I, I, this, I initially started for my own personal interest. That's all. But the further I, um, the, the further I got into it and the more research I did, this had the elements of a a very good story. I mean, it's a love story between him and his estranged wife. 
uh, it, it's a story about early immigration by Italian people to uh, Canada and some of the hardships and prejudice that they faced here and how really, partly because of a language barrier, but also because of prejudice, they weren't given a, uh, an opportunity. So, you know, when alcohol prohibition came along, this was their, you know, uh, this, this was their opportunity and they took advantage of it. It, it, you know, then it became uh, the people, uh, the characters were in, that were involved, the organized crime, and uh, Bessie herself was quite an interesting character when I found her out. You know, she was, I mean, you could write a book about her, you know. She herself, she was murdered in August of 1930. Her and Rocco were uh, going back to their a mansion in Hamilton. Uh, he had pulled up to the garage. It was approximately 11.30 at night. She opened one side of the garage. And she went into the garage to turn the lights on before he pulled in. And uh, two men stepped behind the second car that they owned in the garage. And they blasted her with a 12-gauge shotgun. One in the face and one in the head. She died instantly right on the garage floor. So I guess what goes around comes around, doesn't it? You can say that, yeah. <laughs> I did like at the end of your book, um, I think it's the very, I think it's actually the last chapter, you go into telling, like, it's titled What Happened to Them, and you go into detail about most of the people that we've come across in the in the book already, like, what happened to them after the murder. It sounds like a lot of them ended up dying pretty early on, most likely because of the lifestyle they, they were involved in. A couple of them, yeah. Like a lot of them, uh, there was um, one man um, who I believe was giving information to the police about the murder secretly. Uh, he had moved to uh, British Columbia, which on the, is on the west coast of Canada, uh, furthest most province in, in Canada on the west coast, the Pacific coast. And he uh, lived the remainder of his life there. I think he died in 1973 or 74. At the age of maybe 80 years old or something, I don't. A few of them move. One of them moved to California. Pretty hard to trace what happened to him. And like when Frank got deported to the United States, because that's where he originally landed. uh, I I guess uh, because he was a murderer, he was deported from the United States back then. You know, I just didn't have any way of finding out. What eventually happened to Frank? I don't know. So Rocco, it's it's a mystery. Supposedly in 1943, he had been uh, released from an internment camp here in Canada during the war, you know. And in 1944, he disappeared. A lot of people say he's at the bottom of the um, Hamilton Harbor, you know, wearing a cement uh, shoes. I don't know. And And then somebody else has written a book how he lived the remainder of his life in Messina, New York, Upper New York State. So, you know, anyway, you know, as much as I can find out about what happened to them later on in their life, I put it in the book. But that wasn't the main uh, focus of me writing the book. The main focus of me writing the book was to solve a mystery and solve a crime, solve the murder. You know. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Everything that you had said about Rocco that you just talked about when I read it, uh, I thought it was interesting that he just kind of went missing and then. Nobody really knew what happened to him. Abby and I talk about a lot of different disappearances or people who just go missing and then they're never seen or heard from again. 
And it's always curious to us how people can just fall off the face of the planet so quickly. Well, back then it might have, might have been real easy to happen, you know, yes. to do it. Because, you know, there was no internet. Uh, uh, there was, uh, I mean, um, a lot of Italians that moved uh, uh, to Canada from Italy, they changed their last names, dropped the vowel at the end. You know, if there's no paperwork on them, a lot of them, you know, that were born here, like say say their uh, their their fathers had a real Italian sounding name and they wanted to anglify it, they would just you know when they registered their son being born or their daughter, they would just give them that new name. You know, and unless you're looking up uh, birth certificate birth certificates in Canada or death certificates, you'd never know it. I mean, there's people walking around right now that have names that were just invented by their immigrant parents, you know. So it, it would be very easy to, to lose the trail of somebody if they wanted to not, not be found back then. We're, today it would be a lot, you know, faith recognition technology and, uh, you know, fingerprints uh, technology. Don't forget back then they, they had it, but it was in its infancy. It was still called the Bertellian uh, measurements you know you know it's, it's a lot more sophisticated now yeah you know to, to, to disappear back then if you really wanted to yeah be, it wouldn't be that hard if you had some money to do it if you could start a new life I, yeah i agree i think back then it definitely would have been easier like you said nowadays we have facial recognition we have cameras it's a lot harder to disappear so have you ever, like before or following your research, ever been interested in any sort of true crime? Or was this specifically just because it was a family member that was unsolved? Uh, not really. I'm not, I really never had any. I mean, I used to watch the news and everything and follow maybe some sensational murder that had happened, uh, you know, uh, a month before you know, a week before or something like that. But never really fascination or real interest in it. Uh, the interest really was sparked because I guess it was my my great uncle, you know. Okay, so did, I didn't see it at the end of the book necessarily, but did anything come of your research? Is the case still considered unsolved? Well, it's, it's, it's still considered unsolved, I guess, by the police, you know. I mean, the Toronto police had no file on this. There was one remaining report at the Archives of Ontario, and it was Inspector Boyd's report. There were, uh, there were three police forces working on this in Toronto. There was the, uh, the Toronto police, there was the Mimico police, and then, and then it was the uh, uh, OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. So police, three police forces were working on it. And as late as uh, October, November of 1917, there were newspaper articles saying that with all this investigation, they were unable to come up with one clue. That's kind of crazy to not be able to come up with one clue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, as soon as I started reading the newspaper articles, I could start seeing some clues. And as soon as I read Inspector Boyd's report, I saw a lot of clues, but and can't come. You know, they're saying they they couldn't come up with one. Well, you know, the world's changed in a hundred years, and people have changed, and police tactics of investigation has changed, and 
I don't know. Maybe we've evolved uh, to the point where uh, you know we think a little bit more independently than just blindly believing anything that we're being told. And back then, you know, uh, like Inspector Boyd, whatever he was told, he believed it. You know, he never questioned. He never thought of deception. You know, I guess. Yeah. Had 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 he concentrated a little bit more on that, I think. I don't know if he would have solved it. He'd certainly come a lot closer than what he did. I, w- I think I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. I think that I, that's all the questions that I have for you, Joe. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to discuss this with us um, and for spending multiple years of your life researching this case and investigating it to, to come up with answers. I want to thank Erica and Abby, both of you, for having me on the show and giving me an opportunity to talk about my book. And uh, I enjoyed speaking with you very much today about it. Thank you. It's been great. It's been so informational. I really enjoyed, I mean, the story is really intriguing to me. So I, I really enjoyed listening to um, your perspective in person on this. Well, don't forget to tell all your listeners where they can get We sure will. We'll even provide a link for them. Yes, it'll be in our uh, description, the link for the book. So for those of you that have been listening, um, thank you guys so much for listening to the episode. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to Joe. If you guys want to read his book, I read the whole thing. I made a lot of notes. It's it's so intriguing to hear everything and see all the pieces and how they fit together. Um, Once again, his book is called Murder Lost to Time. And as he said, you can purchase the book on Amazon. You said in paperback or Kindle, correct? Yes. Okay, perfect. So if you guys want to check out his book, then I would highly recommend it. You can uh, learn more information about what he's told you, along with things that we didn't even have the chance to cover. There are is so many different aspects to the book, and it's really cool to see the whole process kind of play out. So thank you so much, Joe. Ladies, okay. thank you again very much, but it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll be in touch. Okay, then. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.